Perfect Stranglers contains graphic and explicit content suitable for mature listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Perfect Stranglers. My name is Kylie. And I'm Bree. And... and that's all of us today. And that's all of us today. Yep, Nicole is still at her um at her sister's house with the baby. Baby. I forgot to say it in the last episode. The baby's name is Ginny. That's the that's not like the full name, but that's what we're calling her. Is that's the nick the nickname that she was born with is Baby Ginny. Uh not unlike Ginny Weasley. <laughs> Cute. <laughs> TBD on if she is a redhead or not. I don't think she is. But, uh, I mean, they definitely have the genes, so. Wouldn't that be cute if she was a redhead Ginny? That would be adorable. Yeah, but she would never be able to live that live that down. No. That would be a constant comparison. Constant comparison. And, like, what if she doesn't even like Harry Potter? Like, people are, like, like always, right. they'll probably, like, always be buying her Harry Potter shit. Oh, your name's Ginny. God, you must I'd like Harry s- Potter. Listen, I'm going to give a hot take. Harry Potter isn't that great. Uh, agree. Sorry. I'm so sorry. Thank you. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's truly, it's truly not that great. And it's like when adults are super into Disney, it weirds me out a little bit. Like, why are you a 35-year-old woman obsessed with Disney princesses? Like, you can like what you like. But I just feel like your tastes should grow as you get older. You know? Yeah. I mean, I like Disney. I don't have any, like, you know, Disney tattoos or, like, anything like that. Um, Yeah. I mean, for me, as far as it goes, for me, is having Disney Plus, having a Toy Story blanket, a Toy Story pajama bottoms... Uh, and having, uh, Disney, three games of Disney trivia. It's about as far as it goes for me. But, um, yeah. sometimes, I think sometimes when people don't, didn't have, like, a good childhood, they like to get stuff like that that they couldn't have as a kid or something. Couldn't have when they were a kid. Yeah. Yeah, that's like the whole, nos- that's like the nostalgia generation in us, I think. Yeah is we are they call us the nostalgia generation because our we had such a fast speed of like things no longer being in style more so than any other generation like we got to experience before and after technology yeah and we got to experience and it all came really fast the technology came really fast Yes, and so we we saw everything speed up so quickly that a lot of the things that we grew up with went away very quickly. Mm-hmm. Floppy disks, that kind of, for example. Yes, floppy disks. <laughs> renting movies at, like, renting a movie at Blockbuster. Yeah. On a Friday night. I mean, God. We didn't go to Blockbuster very much at all because they were more expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, did you go to Family Video? Um... Well, usually it was actually wet steins in on Alaska. Oh, yes. Yep. Yep. I remember that. Yep. Yeah. All That's right. That's where we All normally right. were. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
I forget that that was there. Holy shit, blast from the past. Yeah, in Center 90, next to the grocery yes. store. Next to the IGA. Oh, my. Yup, and right where uh, uh, Lindy's, subs was be- Lindy's subs was. Yeah, no, it's still there. Right next to it. Isn't it across the street? They though? moved back. They moved. They did? Yep, they moved over to. Yeah. They moved to Center 90. Wow. Now over there where Lindy's used to be, it is um, like, I think it's Gino's hot dog, like Chicago dogs or something like that. Mm, okay. Wow. That really brings me back, Brie. Yeah. Holy shit. Right by Salon Centric. <laughs> yep. Yeah. God, those were the good old days. I miss those days. Yep. A lot. Yeah, we are definitely that generation of like that's like our comfort. Like I get I get that people like like the Disney movies and stuff, that's comfort. Like I will watch sometimes I'll I'll put on Rugrats for Everly oh. and then I'll watch it and be like, Wow, this was like a really shitty show but it like brings me yes. back and like I get memories from it. Or like Rocket Power or Cat Dog. Yes, Rocco's Modern Life. I love watching that. Still. Yeah, that was a dirty show. It really was. I really that enjoy was it now. Like <laughs> I want to re. I want to watch that now that I'm older and get all of the references that I never would have gotten when I was. Yeah. <laughs> and like, I doubt that my mom ever paid attention to any of that. She was never like that person to like sit down and watch a cartoon. Right. Like, she was always doing something else. Right. I think parents tune it out because um, cartoons are quite yeah. annoying. Usually, they're like screechy voices and stuff. Very annoying. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to think of what Everly's into now. She watches a lot of Scooby Doo. A lot of fucking Scooby-Doo. That's good. That's and a good I, sign. I, well, okay. So, well, let me tell you what happened. There's a few things with Scooby-Doo that's happened. One, she kept on telling me about this guy named Fred Jones. I was like, who the fuck is Fred Jones? And she's like, my friend Fred Jones. I'm like, who do you know? What grown-ass man is befriending my daughter named Fred Jones? I even text. She talked about Fred Jones for like a whole weekend. I texted Anthony. And I was like, Anthony, do you know who Fred Fred Jones is and he's like no and I'm like Everly keeps talking about her friend Fred Jones and I have no fucking clue who this is and then I went to therapy and I told my therapist I was like Everly keeps talking about this man named Fred Jones and I have no idea who it is and I asked Anthony and I didn't I have no idea who the fuck this person is and then the next week we were watching Scooby-Doo and all of a sudden they didn't even say his name they just said Freddy and it just clicked and I was like Everly is Freddy Fred Jones? And she goes, yeah, Fred Jones. And I was like, oh, my God. Wow. Because in the older episodes, they don't say they're, they don't say Fred Jones. They just call him Freddy. Mm-hmm. But in the newer episodes, they actually say that his name is Fred Jones. Okay. All right. So we had one. So we had just, I think we probably just started the new episodes. And then she learned that his name was Fred Jones. <laughs> Because we had watched all of the older ones already. That's adorable. I was so confused and concerned. And then one night, she had watched she watched Scooby-Doo before bed. And she called me into her bedroom. And she's like, there's gray zombies in here. And I was like, what? And she's like, there's gray, there's, there's gray in here with red eyes. And I was like, what are you talking about? She goes, can you get the gray ones with red eyes out of my room? And oh, my God. girl is seeing demons. And I stopped for a second, and she's like, can I go get ice cubes? And she got ice cubes for her water. And I was like, are you ta- are you the gray people with red eyes? And I didn't want to put it into her head, but I'm like, are you talking about Scooby-Doo zombies? And she's like, yeah, can you get them out of my room? Uh. And I was like, okay, Scooby-Doo is giving her, like, weird nightmares. 
when we would have yeah. when we would say like that there was monsters and stuff and like when my little cousins would stay over and say like oh I'm scared of the monsters under the bed my mom would have this like perfume spray and she said this was monster spray and she would spray it under the bed and she would spray it in the room and you could smell it so you knew it was working right <laughs> oh that's smart yeah. One of my um, friends, she is a therapist and she does therapy for children and they would make, they make monster spray where they put like glitter in oh, it uh-huh. and they spray it so that when you see the glitter, you know, and I'm like, that would drive me yeah. nuts to have glitter everywhere, yeah. but the kids like it and the, they, the glitter makes them think that it's working. Yes. But yeah, that is so smart. Yeah. Everly's not really scared of monsters. Uh, often though, she tells me there's, there's a fish swimming around in her bedroom. So she makes me take the fish out. Huh. Gosh, she's fucking weird. (laughs) (laughs) I love her weird. I love how weird she is. But yeah, she'll tell me that there's a fish swimming around her bedroom and I'll have to like pretend that I'm wrangling it up and I'll grab it and I'll whip it back and I'll throw it in the toilet and she'll make me flush the toilet. Is Jeffrey Dahmer on your coffee mug? Yep. (gasps) It says, oh my God. It says, you're looking like a real snack. I love that so much. Oh my, that is so much better than my mug. My mug just says Village Witch on it. <laughs> Which accurate, but God, your mug's way better. Yeah, I'm known for my mugs around here. <laughs> God, I love a good, I love a good mug, a good inappropriate mug. Yeah. Yes, I know. I love the mugs where it's like, it says like, uh, coffee makes me poop and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> or the ones where on the bottom, there's nothing on mm-hmm. it, but then on the bottom it says fuck you or something. Yeah. God, I love inappropriate coffee mugs or just, like, funny coffee mugs. It's such a, like, subtle but good way to express your personality. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Love it. Well, Bree, do you want to do some housework? Sure. Housework. If you guys can go and like, rate, and subscribe to us, uh, that would be perfect because when you review us, it helps other fans of the uh true crime genre to be able to find us and it just it just helps us move up the charts which is really what we want and you can help us do that and also we would love it if you would stop by our social media uh we have you know all the all the normal social medias we've got your facebook we got your uh instagram twitter we got your Facebook, yeah, Instagram, your Twitter, yeah. <laughs> what else is that? What else do we have? Is yeah, that it? we have Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We have a YouTube. We should be better about oh, updating YouTube. True, we got. Um, but we do have a YouTube. And on there. Really, we just have it. Yeah, we just have a YouTube because some people like to listen to podcasts on YouTube, which like, whatever trips your trip. I think I some people are they're more familiar with YouTube and it, they find it easier to find us there just because it's not as intimidating yeah. as downloading like a new app like Spotify if they don't have it or something like that. But yeah, yeah. application. We are on we're we're on the YouTube. And also on the YouTubes. Um we love to uh read your stories. We love to have you send uh your stories into us anything weird creepy uh unsolved mysteries cryptids you know i don't know weird deja vu things. things anything like that we would love to read it on air um because 
uh, our other listeners would love to hear it as well. And I'm sure you want our reactions on it. So just send it on in uh, to contact at perfectstranglers.com, which is another thing. You should go visit our website. It's a pretty cool website. There's some cool stuff on there. There's a quiz. You can see uh, which perfect strangler you are or you most relate to. And um, when you do that, when you take that quiz, why don't you tell us who you got uh, mm-hmm. by leaving a review? That would be lovely. Yeah. that would. That's a good idea. Tell us who you got. Yeah. <clears throat> That's our housekeeping. All right. The end. Thank you. So we're going to do something a little bit different today. And by different, I mean it's the same thing we've already done. (laughs) But we're doing it again. (laughs) Because we've never had to redo a case before. Um, So we had some issues with Menendez Brothers. The main issues were the audio was a little rough. Um, We had some mic issues. And it just wasn't like the best sounding thing that we've put out. And we like to put out the best quality content that we possibly can. So made the decision to take those both episodes down. And I consolidated them and put them into one episode. So we're going to redo Menendez Brothers and put them into this one episode. Yeah. And we also had some issues with like Spotify and Apple and like transferring over the ownership. It's just like a whole podcasts are complicated but really what bothered me about it was the audio because we just we can do better and i just like feel like you guys deserve better so we're gonna redo it and um yeah and that is what it is and i know some of you have already heard it and if you have and you don't listen my heart won't be broken but this is really just selfishly for me because i put in a lot of fucking work into this and i want to have my episode out there yeah so yeah like I don't think like what goes into our research like how I do it is we record every two weeks so the first week I will do nothing but research and I will take notes and just research everything and it I it takes me honestly anywhere between five to ten hours to just research depending on how big the case is and then the next week I will just take all of that research and put it to paper like this I'm holding 25 pieces of paper right now that's how many pages of research I have on the Menendez brothers. So it takes us a lot of time to do this. I would say on average 10 to 20 hours per case. Yeah. Um, and it's a lot. And so I am like that kid who did a shit ton of work for school and just wants their teacher to give them a good grade. <laughs> Validate me. So that's what we're doing today. <laughs> oh, let me take a drink of my coffee. I've been putting coconut oil in my coffee. Uh-huh. Um, because I'm doing keto because I have stomach issues and like it's a whole thing. Anyway, it's not as bad as I thought it would be. Like I know some people do butter in their coffee and that's just is way too weird for me. Yeah. But the coconut oil, coconut oil gives it a nice coconutty flavor, which I enjoy. Hmm. All right. Menendez. <clears throat> My sources on this are all over the place. Um, like IMBD. I watched a couple of documentaries on ABC 2020 Dateline. I watched all of the trials on Court TV. Not all of them because there's hours and hours, but I watched my screen time said I watched like 20 hours of Court oh, TV. <laughs> so yeah, watched a lot. CNN, Refinery29, Vanity Fair, LA Times, Washington Post, and Biography.com is where I got my sources from. So... I'm going to start this off with a quote 
which I think sums up everything perfectly from Pam. I'm going to call her prosecutor, prosecutor Pam. She was the prosecutor on the Menendez trials. She said on the outside to most people, this was the perfect American family. People assume that if you have money, oh, sorry, I have to restart this because I'm laughing right now. I did a control find and I found anywhere that I spelled Eric, E-R-I-C, and corrected it all to E-R-I-K. Well, it turns out the name American has A-M-E-R-I-C, American uh-huh. in it. And so all of the times it says American in here, it has the name Eric in it, like E-R-I-K. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, Wow. And I don't know why I find that funny. I, don't, I didn't think um, it would do that. <laughs> it did, apparently. But anyway, she said, on the outside to most people, this was the perfect American family. People assume that if you have money, you have no problems. And you're certainly not going to do anything like kill your parents because you got it made. But it turns out that rich people have dysfunctional families just as much as poor people. One kid killing the parents is a bad seed and two kids killing the parents is a bad family. And that is 100% what happened here. Yeah. really sums it up yeah so the family jose menendez um he was the dad he was born on may 6th in 94 or not 94 (laughs) 49 sorry guys a little dyslexic over here in 1949 in havana cuba he was born to a very rich family his father was a that well-known soccer player um he owned also owned his own accounting firm his mom was a professional swimmer who had been elected to cuba's sports hall of fame And although the family was not among, like, the top elite in Cuba, there were definitely, like, celebrity athletes and just very affluent in the community. He also had two two sisters. They were definitely not struggling as a family. Jose was the only boy, and his mom was very fond of him being the only boy. Um, She very much emphasized to him that he was the man, and he needed to bring forth that manliness and his machismo and just like kind of be the man of the house yeah like priming him to be the man of the house you know what i mean yeah um and that kind of turned him into like this asshole bully a very like vain narcissistic bully yeah basically it sounds like it could become toxic very easily yes um in 95 the menendez family the original one in cuba uh they kind of basically had their lives turned upside down fidel castro was overthrowing the government at this time and he ended up seizing the property of the wealthy and upper middle class which actually included the menendez's family estate oh side note so on that have you ever seen dirty dancing havana nights i have Yes, I have. That's like such a crappy movie, but I also love it. And that movie takes... It is a cult classic. Right? (laughs) It takes place during that time of when all this turmoil was Mm -hmm. going on uh, down there. Yes. And Diego Luna is in it. And he's very cute. (laughs) Oh, Oh, my God. So cute. Oh, he is so cute. I was, I was the whole time I'm like, mention Diego Luna, mention Diego Luna. <laughs> I love that movie so much. Yes. God, that is one of those shitty movies that is like so good. Yes. Carry on. Um, carry on. Okay. <laughs> My wayward son. So in 1960, 16 year old Jose left the country to live in the US. Um, he flew over with his sister and her fiance. I'm assuming that he also flew over with, like, his mom and dad and the rest of the family, but I couldn't really find much on, like, who all came over. Mm-hmm. Um, he ended up basically kind of sheltering himself. He didn't make a lot of friends, and this is when 
his personality began to show and how much of an, a cutthroat asshole he was. Um, in high school, he was the definition of an overachiever. He was extremely athletic, like his parents, very competitive, very just intense person, and that kind of carried on throughout his life. He won an athletic scholarship, not to like a specific college, but just like a sum of money, but he couldn't attend an Ivy League college, which is a blow to his ego because that's like peak academic success is going to an Ivy League college. Mm-hmm. So he ended up attending Southern Illinois University. He went on to work a lot of jobs over the years, both as a single man, as a married man, and into his fatherhood, being a father. Um, He worked in the rental car industry, music industry. Eventually, he worked as a high-profile Hollywood exec at a really successful production company, which we will get into later. Um, So we'll get to know the mom, Kitty Menendez. Her real name is Mary Louise Anderson. She was nicknamed Kitty because at one point in her childhood, her brother was trying to call her to the car and he went, here, kitty, kitty, kitty. And it just fucking stuck. Hmm. What an odd thing to just stick. Right? So fucking weird. He must have done it once and then she came and he's like, this works. Let's try it again. Like a brother would do, you Uh know? Kitty was born to a middle-class family in a suburb of Chicago. Um, Her father owned an air conditioning business. Her home life was pretty shitty. His uh, father was very mean, abusive, not only her, but also to her mom. Um, When she was a kid, her father completely ended up abandoning the family to move in with his mistress. So because of this, Kitty pretty much turned into a a reclusive child, had very few friends, um, very depressed, moody and she eventually cut off all contact with her dad and she also ended up attending college at southern illinois university and that's where she met jose Um, kitty and jose ended up getting married in 1964 in the early years of their marriage they ended up moving to new york so jose could work on his career kitty was at that time an elementary school teacher and she had like these big dreams of becoming an actress in hollywood but after she gave birth to the children, um, Joseph Lyle Menendez, who we're just going to call Lyle, and Eric Menendez, she became a full-time mom instead because Jose didn't allow her to do much else because he was very controlling. Mm-hmm. I'm going to tear off my pages. So Jose was known for being very much so disliked pretty much wherever he went. He was an arrogant asshole and very rude to his coworkers. He was abrasive, and he was willing to cut off people, burn any bridges he made, and do anything that he possibly could to get to the top of the ladder um, in business. He had no regard for anyone else's feelings, no moral or ethical code, really, and he saw no value in continuing working or personal relationships if they didn't have any benefit to him financially or professionally. So really all he cared for was making it to the top, People that worked with him did not like him, and people that worked for him just fucking despised him. He made a lot of enemies. His motto in life was, quote, lie, cheat, steal, but win. And that is so fucked up. Hmm. Like, he is, a, he is a psychopath. Yeah, for sure. He reminds me of American, American Psycho. Yeah. That movie with Christian Bale is what he reminds yes. me of. Um, yeah. He actually went on to calling his sons his thoroughbreds, and he raised them as if they were his prized racehorses. That's disgusting. And, yeah, it was like he had them solely to fulfill his goals of living the American dream, 
to show off his racehorses. Yeah. It was like why I think he had kids. That's a terrible so, reason to have kids. <laughs> that is, it's an awful reason to have kids just to having kids as a prize. Like a trophy. Like they're not a prize. Yeah. Yes. Like why people have trophy wives. Mm-hmm. He's like his prized mini versions of him. Mm-hmm. So while Jose was working his way up in business and gaining a reputation, he eventually became an executive for RCA Records. Um, and that's where he networked and became acquaintances with a lot of celebrities and executives in the entertainment industry. He eventually ended up being a producer for um, a company called Live Entertainment, which was originally a porn producing company. <laughs> but uh, they later on went to produce shows like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> And eventually movies like Reservoir Dogs and The Blair Witch Project. Quite the uh, resume for that company. Yes. Yep. Yep. And I learned that a lot of times porn, the porn industry is often a front for the mafia because it's the easy way to bring in a lot of money. Oh, sure. Um, Oh, sure. And later on, we'll learn that the mafia was like slightly involved in this case because of possible connections that he may have had. Mm -hmm. If Um, they existed. If they existed. (laughs) Yep, exactly. So the brothers growing up, the boys were just, they were spoiled, obviously. Kitty's brother, who was a fucking asshole, would tell her that she needs to reel the boys in and give them some discipline because they were basically allowed to do what they want when they wanted. Um, But that's kind of how Jose was. He did what he want when he wanted. So what do you expect, you know? Um, but all that kind of stopped once the boys were in their late child to preteen years when they could start actually competing in something. Um, so between eight and ten years old is when the boys kind of got reeled in and they kind of got put into this bubble. So their childhood was full of privilege and that kind of all started when they moved from New York to Princeton, New Jersey. So when we look at their life in Princeton specifically, one of their neighbors has began coming out to do interviews on the family. And she said that Princeton, New Jersey is all about old money. You're modest with your wealth. You have the big house, but you don't show it off, that type of thing. But with the Menendez family, they were new money. Jose worked really hard for his money, and he wanted to let people know. Everything was about image with him, and their public image had to be absolutely flawless, and they had to be seen as like the perfect american family um a few of the ways that they would do it do this was for example they would do the son's homework lyle and eric didn't do very well in school because when it came to test taking they had no idea what the fuck they were doing they didn't know the answers because their parents wouldn't allow them to do their homework because they wanted the homework to be flawless um which is really kind of backwards because then they would fail their tests In fact, Kitty would lock them up in a closet for hours on end if they were home from school and force them to do their work or just sit in the closet for up to 10 hours a day and just kind of like sit there and do their work. And if they finished, they just had to sit there. And one of the boys, I think it was Lyle, he got caught coming out of the closet and got in trouble for it because he needed to go to the bathroom. So Lyle started bringing a baggie into the closet and going to the bathroom in the baggie oh, so that he wouldn't get in trouble. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah. If she treated, because yep. you said she was a, a school teacher before she had kids and stuff. Yeah. I want, if she treats yep. her own kids that way when she's like trying to school them or whatever, I wonder how she treated yeah. her students. 
Exactly. I never thought about that. That's a, yeah, I don't know. It's really scary though. Um, and like throughout this whole thing, we know that Jose was an asshole with Kitty. There's conflicting reports on who exactly she was as a person. Mm -hmm. Cause we can see that she definitely battled with a lot of things and it's not, there's a really blurry line on if Kitty was truly a bad person or not. But well, she probably says, had some identity issues herself, I'm guessing, just yeah. like from how she grew up being abusive and, or in an abusive home and all that. I don't yeah. know. She definitely had a lot of trauma that yeah. needed to be unpacked. Um. Another thing that they would do is Jose would make the boys take a limo to school. It wasn't something that the boys asked for. It was just something that Jose had the boys do to be like, my boys have a limo and they can show up to school with a limo because I can afford it. Yeah. Like what kid is going to turn down limo service? You know what I mean? Except Mia Thermopolis. Yes, except her. And they were definitely not Mia Thermopolis. How do you say her last name? Thermopolis. Thermopolis, yeah. It's Greek. Thermopolis, yeah. Yeah, they were not her. So, uh, yeah. And Delilah and Eric lived to please their fathers, so of course they did it. And it isn't to say that the boys didn't work for what they asked for. Like, they definitely had to work for what they got. But, like, the caveat to that was that they had to work for what they got for, but they had to do a very specific type of work. The boys had to be in tennis, like, the, they had to be competitive in something, and they had to be experts in something and the best that they could possibly be. So they were in tennis. Um, so Jose hired countless tennis coaches, one of which was actually a coach, a coach for Venus Williams, to train Lyle and Eric. If they weren't at school, they were on the tennis court training for hours upon hours upon hours. And Jose was, like, that person who would stay there for the entire tennis like training and if he thought that the boys weren't doing well enough or the coaches weren't training him to his specifications jose would go onto the tennis court and show the coach exactly how he should be training the boys which is like (laughs) okay dance moms get off the fucking tennis court like why'd you even hire a trainer if you could do it yourself (laughs) exactly yeah it was just really kind of fucked up so Lyle especially got kind of the brunt of all this. He was the firstborn, and he was supposed to be like a mini Jose. He was um, getting really fucking good at tennis as he got older, and they actually tried to utilize his talent as an attempt to get a scholarship into Princeton. He didn't get that scholarship, but Kitty and Jose really wanted him to go there. His grades just weren't good enough. I wonder why. Because obviously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Jose ended up writing a check for $50,000, which back in the 80s was a lot of fucking money. Um, and after the check was written, Lyle magically got accepted to Princeton. Mm. And he was there for a year. He was basically told to leave because of his poor grades. He was even accused of plagiarizing papers, which, like, yeah, uh-huh. no fucking duh. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't know how you to. You can't expect a kid to be able to study at Princeton when he doesn't know how to take a right. test. Yeah. So from the outside, the family kind of seemed like they had it all. But the neighbor I was talking about, Alicia Hertz, who lived next to them in New Jersey, said that the boys idolized the fuck out of... She didn't say the fuck. I said the fuck. She (laughs) idolized Jose (laughs) out of fear. Sorry, the boys idolized Jose out of fear. Um, 
but no one really knew the reason for the fear, but like she could make speculations on why the fear was there because she saw the way that they interacted and looked at him. Yeah. And it was almost like the boys had Stockholm Syndrome. Uh-huh. And that kind of clicked for me when I watched a Barbara Walters interview of the boys shortly after the trial ended. So Barbara Walters asked, describe your relationship with your father. With your father. And Eric said it was brutal, painful, torturous, and yet I admired him because he was so strong. He was everything that success was, and I thought that's and I thought that's what success was. And I thought that he was the most powerful and brilliant person I have ever met. And that is just fucking scary, especially when we learn how exactly they were treated by their father. Yeah. So in 87, Jose moved the entire family to Calabasas, California, where he got a job as the executive for live entertainment. They had been living in Princeton, New Jersey for about 20 years at that point. So in Calabasas, Lyle and Eric befriended a group of kids. They weren't kids, they were high schoolers, but I'm going to call them kids. They weren't the greatest influences, and Lyle and Eric and this group of kids would do things called hot prowls, where they would basically go to neighborhood houses, which are more like mansions, and break in and pretend to steal things just to prove that they could get into the houses and feel that rush of what a robbery would be like. Mm -hmm. um, at one point, though, Lyle actually did commit a burglary. He took things from that. It was his girlfriend's house. He took thing fr things from that house. Um, but not to be outdone, Eric said, you know what, brother? I can do the exact same thing. So he went back into the girlfriend's house and stole something and came out with it to show Lyle just to prove that, you know what? I can not only break in just like you did, but I can take stuff out of the house just like you did. Um, Eric, just, he wanted to be, he idolized his younger or his older brother as well. So he like also kind of wanted to be like him. In total, in that uh, burglary, over 100000 Dollars worth of items were eventually stolen, including cash and jewelry from a safe. So prosecutor Pam heard that this wasn't something where the boys were going in and breaking and entering and taking a few jewels and like possibly putting them back. She heard that it was more like they had a moving van outside and would put that in the driveway and actually clear out houses. Like that was their plan and what they were trying to do. Oh. So that was very different than the story of what everyone else had heard that they were just like breaking and entering. Mm -hmm. Um, so the boys did end up actually getting arrested. Once Jose heard about the arrest from the burglaries, he was very quick to act because he didn't want this getting out to the public, to news outlets or anyone in their social circle. So what Jose did to remedy this was he went to every single house that the boys robbed. He apologized and asked them for a number. What's the monetary value of what got stolen? He then wrote a check to all of these houses and asked them to be quiet. He gave them hush money. Um, and Jose wasn't happy with the boys at all that this happened, but he was more upset that they got caught rather than the fact that they committed a crime. Because in his mind, winners don't get caught. Right. The whole image thing. So... Yep. So the boys got probation for this. They ended up giving all of the stuff back. And it was shortly after that, that Jose ended up moving the family from Calabasas um, to Beverly Hills. And that was his way of distancing himself from the embarrassment that his boys had caused him. So the move to Beverly Hills happened in 1989. The family, of course, fit right in. Lyle was 20 at this point. He was out of high school. 
the Princeton incident had already happened and Kitty was kind of really having identity issues and like you said and really starting to second guess how much they had given the boys and how they had raised the boys um Lyle basically thought that he could get away with anything because that's how he was raised up until this point he was really just doing as his father said do whatever you need to do to get ahead of in life and he was a loose cannon he would cause a scene wherever he went and he was just very over the top and he was a ladies man it was rumored that he was actually dating victoria's secret models at this time hmm. he was kind of living his best rich boy life yeah. and not getting in trouble for must it be nice right must be nice so eric the younger brother when they moved from beverly hills to calabasas he kind of really came into his own he kind of had a new confidence about him he was definitely more of the shy reserved brother brother whereas Lyle was more charismatic. But it turns out that Eric um, was a natural in front of the camera. He was very photogenic. He had, like, cheekbones for days. That's the younger um, one? He's definitely... Yeah. yeah, the younger one. Yeah, he he has great, he has great bone structure. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to throw that out there. Um, he wanted to be a working model and work in show business, but he was also... Um, as is the art, artsy one, kind of the darker one, the more moody one. And there was a photographer who worked with him on photo shoots, and he said that the very last photo shoot that he did with Eric was very different. His energy was off. He, was, he had a very heavy energy about him. And Eric didn't say what was going on, but the photographer at the time did see a change in him. He was very quiet and withdrawn. And I guess when the photographer looks at those pictures now... He knows what was going through his mind. And he said in an interview that those pictures are very haunting to him now because now he knows the full story. Um, And it was suspected that Eric may be gay. And at this time in American culture in the late 80s, early 90s, being gay and gay marriage was very unacceptable. And Jose, of all people, would not have approved right. of Eric being That's gay when at the all. whole AIDS crisis was going on and people were very afraid. Yep. And yeah, they thought yep. that it was only a thing that um, gay men could get, stuff like that. It's a lot of misinformation. Yes. And yeah. And to this day, so that really took a toll on him. And to this day, Eric states that he's not gay. Not like it would matter to us at all or like the public nowadays. But back then, it would have created kind of a powder keg of sorts in Eric's brain of trying to battle his sexuality. Whether he be straight and people are accusing him of being gay or he's gay and he just doesn't want to come out. Either way, it's just like a bad mental situation. So also during this time in 89, it was revealed to Kitty that Jose was having an affair with a woman in New York and another woman in L.A. The women in New York and L.A. didn't know about each other. And Jose was also being provided sex workers at the time. Wow. No way, Jose. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that was so good. good um a lot of the family friends looking into the marriage uh said that jose and kitty they never showed affection to each other they wouldn't touch no holding hands it was like a business relationship and kitty did eventually end up allegedly attempting suicide 
she overdosed on Valium and the nurses who helped her believe that she did that it in fact was a suicide attempt. However, other sources say that it wasn't an attempt at suicide. She accidentally overdosed. Valium is very easy to overdose yeah. on because it has an extended half-life. Um, what the truth on that is, I'm not sure, but I, she definitely had a reason to have those dark thoughts. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, in the same interview with Barbara Walters that I mentioned, the boys were asked to describe their relationship with their mother and Lyle said, my mother was a person in a lot of pain. She was an alcoholic and she was suicidal. Eric said there was not a lot of communication, but I saw her as, I saw her hurt and I saw her get beaten. Barbara asked them to clarify that Kitty was battered by Jose and the boys reply, yes, battered physically and certainly emotionally. So I think it was a suicide attempt. Yeah. Um, just reading about the case, that's kind of my conclusion on it. So, finally, things kind of hit a tipping point in the summer of 89. Jose had a conversation with his brother where he revealed that he was so disappointed in who his sons have become that he was contemplating taking them out of the will. (laughs) And it's like, well, you raised them, Jose. And so, like, like, paint the picture of who Jose truly was. I just, I I feel like if he was... Like, there was obviously a disconnect for him because if you have that much, like, pride and, like, image is, like, a whole thing for you, um, just to even admit that your son's turned out, uh, not ideal is to admit that your own failure. So he obviously didn't connect that. Yeah. He was too vain too narcissistic to admit fault yeah in himself yeah yeah so a lot of people came out ex-co-workers reporters who have interviewed dozens of people all say the same thing about him he was someone who demanded perfection never got it he wanted to be feared um and alicia the neighbor um did an interview where she shared that kitty and jose always had pet ferrets which was really weird to me yeah that they had pet ferrets that seems like a really weird pet for them to have but like whatever um well one of their pet ferrets had passed away and kitty <clears throat> sorry and oh my god i've spit in my throat sorry guys <laughs> i don't know what just happened in my my body anyway so while they had a pet ferret and i guess their pet one of their pet ferrets had passed away and kitty and jose assumed that one of the dogs had killed it so they had two dogs and one of the dogs was a big black dog and very aggressive one day the kids opened their fridge and found the black dog's head inside of the fridge presumably from jose getting so mad at the dog that he cut it off and put it in the fridge but why do you need to put it in the fridge i think it was probably a lesson of you guys aren't going to take care of your parrots or your ferrets your ferrets are dying well this is your revenge like, here's a dog head because you guys couldn't watch your animals taking care of the ferrets. Oh, my God. You know what I, mean? I I think that that's what it was. Like, your ferrets are dying while here's another dead animal of yours. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. What the fuck? Yeah. There are, there are read a few stories of, a few stories on that story of, like, 
how he was just doing it to like show the boys what he was capable yeah, of. Yeah, because if that's just, if they're just gonna let their ferrets. Yeah, die. no, because that's gross. That's really gross. Right. It's really fucking morbid and brutal and very violent. And just unnecessary. Like, if you're going to kill the dog and discard yeah. it, why refrigerate its head? That was not the first thought In that what? I had. I first thought that, like, maybe they were, like, going to have some, like, vet testing on its brain or something to see if it had, like, rabies or something like that. I mean, I don't know how they do that. But, like, how, I don't know. I just thought of, like, how they have John Wayne Gacy's brain and they wanted to do, like... <laughs> yeah but and like even if that were the case like you wouldn't cut the dog in half you yourself right you would take that the vet would do whatever the autopsy yeah. they have to do whatever they do to a dog which i don't think would entail decapitation Pro- i mean probably not probably not right probably not no what the hell <laughs> So, um, while they were living in Calabasas, Eric befriended a dude named Craig Sigrinelli, and that saying that name really makes me want a cannoli. And do the, um, Italian hand. Oh, the Italian hand. Craig Sigrinelli eating a cannoli. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) God, that sounds good. Um, not my accent, a cannoli, just to clarify. (laughs) Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so they started writing screenplays together. Um, specifically, they wanted to write murder mysteries. They came up with a story of kids killing their parents and getting life insurance money. Um, the screenplay was originally written, and it didn't mirror the crime that we're going to get into in detail. Just overall, like the murder for insurance money, which is a common theme in a lot of, you know, murder mysteries and stuff. Yeah. Um, but a few months before the murders, Eric began adjusting the screenplay and completely rewrote the first five pages of it. And it turns out the first five pages is almost exactly what was done at the scene of the crime. Huh. So. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. A little, a little fishy there. Um, then a week before the murders happened, Lyle and Kitty were arguing. Kitty got so upset that she began hitting and smacking Lyle, ended up reaching across and ripping off his toupee, which fucking ouch. Yeah. Like, major ouch. Those are, like, glued on. That would hurt. Um, Eric saw all of that go down, and he was shooketh. Not that Kitty was hitting Lyle, because that was a common occurrence. Um, but he didn't know that his brother, they were 18 and 20 at the time, he did not know that Lyle wore a toupee. <sighs> yeah. That's it, rough. And yeah. I mean, it, he's that's too young, you know, to... Yeah, yeah. That's when you're trying to get all the ladies and stuff. That's got to be a confidence right. killer. And especially, like, Lyle being a ladies' yeah. man. Like, yeah. So it turns out Jose made Lyle wear the toupee because he was having thinning hair and Jose didn't want anyone to know that his hair was thinning, not even Eric, because it would have been an absolute embarrassment to the family, apparently. Oh, wow. What a horrible thing. Right. (laughs) Exactly. So the brothers were fed up with the secrecy and they decided to have a very emotional conversation about all of the secrets that was happening in the family. Eric broke down during the conversation and just started crying. And it was at this time where he revealed to Lyle that, quote, dad has been doing things to me. Well, it turns out that Lyle, when he was younger, told a cousin who was interviewed about the whole situation um, nowadays. Lyle told her that one night when they were younger and the cousin was sleeping over, she was in her room for the night changing her sheets. And Lyle came in um, and said that he was scared to sleep in his own bed because his dad had been in the bed and they had been touching each other down there. 
the cousin who was a bit older than Lyle um, recognized that this is kind of a big fucking deal. So she went upstairs and told Kitty and Kitty didn't believe a word that the cousin was saying and completely disregarded the entire thing. Um, and according to Eric, yeah. So throughout this time, Eric and Lyle had in confidence told family members that this was happening. They each told a cousin, it turns out. Mm -hmm. Um, and the cousins, this cousin told Kitty it was not believed and the other cousin didn't say anything, I guess, until the trial. Um, but according to Eric, after the confrontation with the toupee being ripped off, which was apparently over them being written out of the will, and Eric telling Lyle about being molested, Jose then said to Lyle, because Jose learned that this whole situation had happened, um, Jose said, you're going to tell everyone what's happened, and I am not going to let you do that. So it was at that point that the boys felt that their lives were now very much so in danger and on the line. So they made the joint decision to then purchase guns and go through with the crime. So on August 20th, 1989, it was an unusually warm night in Beverly Hills. So a lot of people had their windows open to let fresh air in. And Jose and Kitty were sitting on a couch in the family room eating vanilla ice cream with strawberries. They had fallen asleep, I guess, watching TV in the living room. Um, Lyle and Eric entered the family room and Jose was shot in the back of the head with a 12-gauge shotgun. Kitty was apparently awoken by this situation. She got up from the couch. She was shot in the leg and she fell. She was then shot several times in the arm, the chest, and the face. Detectives said she was completely unrecognizable. There was brain matter spattered along with blood just fucking everywhere. Kitty was wearing white at the time of her murder, and her outfit was almost completely covered in red by the end of it all. Oh, God. So she had basically, like, bled out. Kitty was shot in the face. She was missing an eye, part of her nose. Her other eye was crushed into her head. Her teeth was all missing except for one that was just literally hanging by a thread out of her mouth. Yeah. Both Jose and Kitty were also shot in the kneecaps in an attempt to make the murders appear to be mob hits. The mob would never be this messy. Mm -hmm. Like, at all. And the mob wouldn't need to kill the wife. And the shotgun shells were collected by Jose and... um, Or not Jose. Sorry. By Lyle and Eric. The mob wouldn't collect the shotgun shells. But they tried to make it look like a mob hit because it was suspected that... um, Jose was part of the mob. Yeah. So it was determined that the boys had shot Jose, then shot Kitty, then went out to their car to reload their weapons and then finish the job. After the murders took place, the boys sat on the steps just waiting for the police to arrive because they assumed, like, everyone had their windows open. Someone had to have heard something and called the police. Uh-huh. The cops never showed up. So the boys took it upon themselves to call 911 on themselves um, during the call, Lyle is Lyle's the one who made the call. He was crying. He was hysterical. You can hear Eric screaming and crying in the background. And when asked who did it or if they're still there, Lyle says he doesn't know who shot the parents and he doesn't think that they're still there. So when the police arrived, the boys were not seen as suspects. They told the police that while their murders were taking place, they were at the movies and that they went to a Taste of L.A. festival in Santa Monica. Um... No one ever checked the movie tickets for proof of an alibi. They never um, 
underwent any testing for gunshot residue. Their cars were never searched. They were never questioned for anything aside from what their alibi was. Um, at that time, the police didn't feel like there was any reason to suspect them. But due diligence right. should have fucking been done. Because you would have saw gunshot residue and the guns were inside their cars at yeah, that time. Yeah, wow. Great, great detective yep. work. Yep. So back in the late 80s and early 90s, Beverly Hills was a very quiet town. They only averaged two murders a year and their homicide team consisted of two people. Uh-huh. So, like, they were inexperienced, and I know that there was the fear of, this is a very rich neighborhood. The police have to be very careful about what they say, because they can lawyer up. Yeah. But, like, also do your fucking job. Yeah. yeah. The bare minimum. Like, jeez. The bare fucking minimum, right? So, in the months following the murders, the brothers began to spend money like it was nothing. And even though it was suspected that they were written out of the will, they still re- received an insurance payout of $650,000. Mm-hmm. Um, they spent upwards of $100,000 within the first few weeks, including three Rolexes, which equated to about $15,000. Lyle bought a $64,000 Porsche, a brand new Porsche. Lyle bought a $300,000 um he put down a $300,000 down payment on a Buffalo Wing restaurant, <laughs> which he renamed Mr. Buffalo's, which... Okay. That's that's not a great name, but whatever. Eric invested uh, $40,000 into funding a rock concert that never happened because his friend um, bailed on him. They also hired a tennis coach, which was $60,000 a year. So they really did and like tennis, I guess. They really... They really, they were very good at it. They, um, which how can you not be when that's all you do? Yeah. You know, so they did like tennis and Eric was better at it than Lyle and Eric ended up actually traveling internationally and competing. Oh, huh. Yeah. So they were good at it. Um, they bought a shit ton more, but it was inadmissible in court. So it's not really relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, they also hired computer experts cause at that time it wasn't easy to like clear a computer like it is now. Yeah. So they hired computer experts to wipe the family computers clean of anything that would indicate exclusion from the will. So while all of this is going down, everyone was becoming really suspicious of the boys because they're spending like crazy. There wasn't a lot of other suspects that really would like Jose had a lot of enemies. There was one specific person who was seen as a suspect, um, but he was quickly ruled out. He had an alibi. Um, They also looked at mob leads. But nothing came of them. So as the investigation continued, it was pretty fucking obvious to police and investigators that the brothers were most likely the murderers. Um, They had obvious financial motives and were very reckless with their spending. And the police had to be very careful with how they went about catching them because right now they had no actual tangible evidence, just speculation. So in an attempt to get a confession from Eric, the police convinced Craig Singrinelli um to wear a wire while having lunch with him the reason that they chose craig was because 12 days after the murder craig and eric were hanging out playing chess and eric just casually said to craig you want to know how we did it and he spilled his guts to craig yeah yep so after eric did that i guess they went back to playing chess and from my understanding craig just kind of sat with his information for a little bit because he didn't really know if he should turn on his friend or not Mm -hmm. Um, but he obviously did. He 
went and told the police and the police then had Eric and Craig go to lunch. Craig wore a wire and he kind of poked and prodded at him trying to get him to confess. Um, Eric never confessed on tape to Craig. Um, but three months later, Eric really felt the need that he needed to get everything off the chest. He was definitely the chatty one. So he went to Dr. Jerome Ozeal, who was a psychotherapist of the family. Now, Jerome Ozeal was a shady bitch. He was the family therapist for quite some time, and he was actually hired by Jose as a therapist to hear all of the boys' secrets, and then Ozeal would relay those secrets over to Jose. And Ozeal also had three of his patients as... um, mistresses okay so Ozeal, not a very good therapist maybe not even really no, a he was therapist a, at all no he was just kind of a really shitty person yeah. um and Ozeal was eventually stripped of his license so good well deserved that's good yeah very well deserved so when eric confessed to Ozeal, he apparently saw crime scene photos that day and he was very visibly shaken when he arrived at that appointment so um I'm assuming Eric saw those crime scene photos and then made the appointment because he just like was like, this is it. I need to say what we yeah. did. So Eric asked Ozeal to go for a walk for their session. And after they were done walking, Eric just kind of leaned up casually against a post and just said, we did it and shared what they had done to Ozeal. Um, and he said that they got the idea to do to go through with the murders from watching a movie called Billionaire Boys Club, Billionaire Boys Club. Um, the murders, even the gunshot placement and what they did after the murders were almost identical to what had happened in the plot of Billionaire Boys Club. Um, Eric bought a Jeep after the murders and that had happened in Billionaire Boys Club. One of the boys bought a Jeep and wow. like the gunshot placement, there are a lot of synchronicities and what's kind of funny in a dark humor way is that Billionaire Boys Club was distributed by Live Entertainment, the same company that Jose had worked for at the time. Oh my God. <laughs> You know what, though? You know what I just thought of? Um, so, you know, they couldn't do their tests and reports and stuff on their own because somebody already did their homework. So that's why they kind of just used that movie because that's their homework was done. They just followed the movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's pretty much. It's what they did. They said, this is what we're going to do. That's the perfect template for a murder. Let's do it. And they just went for it. So after Eric's confession, Ozeal began recording their conversations and asked his mistress, Judalon Smith, to listen in. And um, Ozeal also let her know where the tapes were being stored should anything happen to him. And Ozeal felt the need to not only record but tell Judalon this information, tell someone else, because he thought that he was going to be killed by Lyle. So Eric had told Lyle that he confessed and Lyle allegedly threatened Ozeal's life if any of the information got out to the public or police. So even though the confession was done in front of Ozeal, he wasn't the one to go to the police. Judalon was actually the one to bring the information forward. So seven months after the murders, Lyle was eventually arrested on March 8th, 1990, and Eric turned himself in three days later after returning to L.A. from Israel, where he was competing in a tennis tournament. Hmm. Um, both boys were held without bail, and from this point on, they were separated. 
So ultimately, the reason for the arrests was the tapes. However, there was a huge debate on doctor-patient confidentiality and whether or not the confessions could or even should be used as evidence yeah. because they were said in confidence. Well, in August 1990, um, the judge stated that the tapes of the conversations between Eric and Ozeal were admissible only because Lyle violated doctor-patient privilege by threatening Ozeal. If Lyle wouldn't have threatened, they, the, pa- the tapes wouldn't have been able to be used. Oh, shoot. If he wanted to get away, he messed up that yeah. one. Yep. So um, the ruling was then appealed and the proceedings were delayed for two years. This entire time, um, both Lyle and Eric were sitting in jail separate for these entire, like the two years that that appeal was happening. That's a long time. It's a long fucking time. They sat in jail for a very long time, just like waiting for things to happen. So in August of 92, the Supreme Court of California ruled that most of the tapes were admissible and in December 92, um, the grand jury in, issued indictments for both brothers and they were convict. they were, um, being charged with the murders of their parents. So the trials finally began in 93. They were an immediate fucking media sensation because they were good looking rich boys. And these were the first trials broadcast on TV. And it, this was the case that started the court TV network. And this was also the time where the O.J. Simpson trials are happening. So what year was both this? trials, 93. Okay. So both trial, O.J. and Menendez, both of those were happening at the same time. And um, both were happening in L.A. County. So this was like a huge, this, this place must have just been insane at this time. Yeah. With reporters. Yeah. Like, absolutely fucking insane. I cannot imagine. So, Jill Lansing was the defense attorney for Lyle, and Leslie Leslie Abramson was the defense attorney for Eric. Um, Leslie was a showstopper. She was a showwoman, very theatrical, very blonde, crazy, curly blonde hair. Looked like she had a pile of Raymond noodles piled on top of her head. <laughs> like, Yeah. Um, The prosecution was warned that Leslie will do anything for her client. She will lie, get under your skin, do whatever she had to do to ensure that her client won their case. Um, Terry Moran, who I'm going to mention a few times in here, he had a lot of good shit to say about this trial um, on a documentary I watched. He was a reporter and still is a reporter for ABC. He said that she is one of the most unpleasant people he has ever had to meet but he respected her greatly because of how hard she fought for her clients. The brothers had the same trial but different juries since each had a different role in the murderer and different in the murder and different childhood experiences. So because of this, Judge Stanley was basically left with the choice of having separate trials which could go on for like over a year or the same trial in separate juries. So he decided to have separate juries. So during the trial, whatever information was for specifically for Lyle, Lyle's jury would hear it and then Eric's jury would leave the room and then vice versa. Mm-hmm. And then if it was for if it was information that both needed here, they would both stay yeah, in there. That's a good plan. Um yeah. It was like a logistical nightmare, but that was like the quickest way to get everything yeah. done. So for the defense, the question wasn't if the brothers were the killers, because we knew that they were. It was like, why? Why did the killings happen? And how much responsibility was really on the brothers for this happening? 
The prosecution operated under the premise that the murders were premeditated, likely for money. Um, and the prosecution didn't really understand why they were going to trial because they had everything that they needed. They had the murderers, they had the weapon, they had um, the crime scene photos, they had all of the spending, the paper trail of all the spending that had happened. They got an insurance payout. They thought this was like a wrap. Mm -hmm. The only reason that there would be a trial would be because um, if there was some type of self-defense. So that's kind of what happened. Everything kind of changed when the brothers got on the stand to testify. Um, the prosecution kept badgering the brothers, asking them about the spending, how it went, to, how the murder went down, why they did certain things like reload the weapons, and what kind of kept coming up was that the boys actually feared for their lives. Um, and the prosecution was like, okay, what's their angle here? Why are they fearing for their lives? Like, there has to be something that they haven't said that's going to be like, like, kind of a turning point in the trial yeah and it just hadn't no one had asked the right question of like why were you afraid mm -hmm. so um lyle had gotten on the stand and talked about the night that it happened he confirmed that he went in he killed his parents and then made the phone call he said on stand yes i made the phone call yes i knew i was lying on the call and yes i was the one crying so when Eric got on the stand and testified that he killed his parents, he said that he walked into the room and the prosecution asked what he did when he walked to the room. And he said that he just started shooting. And when asked what was in front of him, he looked dead into the eyes of the prosecutor and just said what was in front of him was my parents. And like you could tell that he was shocked that he said that. Yeah. It was really kind of wild. Yeah, yeah. just to hear it out loud. Um, <laughs> yep. So at this point, the media and people watching at home just saw the boys as two spoiled brats who killed for insurance money. Mm -hmm. But uh, Eric then took the stand and was questioned by Leslie Abramson of as defense attorney um, of what happened. And it went like this. So Abramson asked Mr. Menendez, you've heard the testimony from your brother Lyle that that you and he killed your parents on August 20th, 1989. Did you not? Eric says, yes, we did. Abramson says, what do you believe was the or originating cause of you and your brother ultimately winding up shooting your parents? Eric says, me telling Lyle that. And at this point, Eric is trying really hard to maintain his composure. He begins crying and um, trying to stifle his cry because when you're on stand, you're told to not show any emotion. Mm -hmm. And so he was trying to stick with that. Um, Abramson says, can I ask a leading question? And the judge interjects and says, let him finish. Eric then says, me telling Lyle that my dad had molested me. So that was like the big bombshell that they were dropping. Yeah. And the courtroom's dead silent at this point. You could hear a pin drop. Up until this point, the prosecution, as we mentioned, knew that they were going to come through with this, some sort of self-defense, likely sexual assault. Um, but they the prosecution truly thought it was going to be a big fucking lie and easy to tell that it was a lie mm -hmm. that very much was not the case um the prosecutor said in the nbc special that when eric took the stand and this finally came to light pam prosecutor pam knew that they were in trouble it was uncovered that between the ages of six and 18 eric was sexually molested by jose 
the sexual abuse was a fairly new offense at that time, which I didn't know. Um, that defense had only been in use for maybe a decade. It's very difficult to prove because it's generally done in a private situation. And all you can really do for a sexual assault defense is bring up the person who was abused and possibly the abuser and testify. And it turns into a battle of whose story is more believable. But in this case, there were a few family members who came forward to corroborate the allegations um, and we talked about that one female cousin. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to talk about Andy Kano, a cousin of the Menendez brothers. He came forward and said on the stand that when Eric was 10 years old, Eric came up to Andy and said, quote, my dad has been my dad has been massaging my dick. And Eric wanted to know if this had been happening to every kid. And Andy remembers vividly telling Eric um, no, this doesn't happen. And Eric asking him to make a promise to never, ever reveal that to anyone. And Andy hadn't until he got on the stand. So then it was Lyle's turn to speak. Um, he was asked by the defense team if between the ages of six and eight, his father had had sexual contact with him. He responded, yes. He was then asked, how did it start? He stated, we would have these talks and he would show me and he would fondle me and he would ask me to do the same with him and I would touch him and we would undress. Lyle went on to say, we would be in the bathroom, he would put me on my knees, he would guide me, my movements, and he would, I would have oral sex with him. The defense asked, what else did he do to you? Lyle said, he used objects. Defense asks, what kind of objects? Lyle says, a toothbrush, some sort of shaving utensil, a brush. Defense asks, did he try to anally penetrate you with something else? Lyle says, he did. Defense asks, and what was it? Lyle says, he raped me. Defense asks, did you tell your brother? Lyle says, no. Defense says, did you do something to your brother? And Lyle stops for a second and says, yes. Defense says, what did you do to your brother? And then Lyle says, I took him out to the woods whenever I felt, I don't know, I took him out sometimes. I took a toothbrush also, and I played with Eric in the same way. And then he says, I'm sorry. And he completely starts breaking down. During this whole thing, they're both like trying not to cry. And you could just tell that they're very ashamed. Mm -hmm. Um, The defense went on to ask more about his interactions with Jose. The defense asks, were you scared? And Lyle says, very. Defense asks, did you ask him not to? Lyle says, yes. The defense asks, how did you ask him not to? And Lyle says, I just told him I don't. Lyle then starts sobbing. He says, I just told him that I don't want to do this and that it hurt me. And he said he didn't mean to hurt me and that he loved me. Oh my God, that's fucked up. It's so fucked up. It is so unbelievably fucked fucked up and it's like no fucking wonder you killed him no wonder you killed your parents yeah and at this point in the trial people everyone was crying in the audience the press members who the press members see and hear fucking everything in these trials Mm -hmm. and they were crying the jurors were crying the audience of the courtroom was in tears um terry moran was in the room for the entire trial And he said that initially he didn't really believe what the boys were saying. He didn't think that they were being truthful on the stand. He thought that they were terrible liars, terrible actors. 
But when they spoke about the sexual assault allegations, their lies were so obvious about things like the spending, the Rolexes, all of that stuff, that it made the truth that much more apparent. He said, quote, watching Lyle and Eric speak, the things that they were saying were not just explicit in detail. That wasn't the shocking thing about it. It was almost it almost seemed accidental in that the things that that people remember in real life, um, you almost wouldn't make up. So I think that he was trying to say that they were having, it was like they were having recalled memories on the stand. They yeah. couldn't make that shit up. Yeah. It was like they were remembering it as they were being asked. Yeah. Um, watching it, it was as if this was the first time they were able to fully get out their truth in front of people in their life that they felt like they never could have told until right. now out of fear of retaliation. Yeah. I bet that was like kind um, of a relief in a way. Yes, very much so. So Terry went on to talk about Lyle while Lyle was speaking, especially the part where Lyle was talking about what he had done to Eric. Um, Terry said the things he was talking about, he said with such shame. But what was even more convincing was watching Eric. I was sitting about 10 feet from Eric. Excuse me. And I could see a vein popping and pulsating out of his forehead as his brother was apologizing. Their own secret, horrible sordidness comes out in public on television. That emotion, that's what a victim looks like. Not an actor, that's what a victim looks like. So later on in the trial, Eric is asked by the defense about the summer of 1989, the year the murders happened. So Eric was asked, did you have some hope over the summer of 1989 for some improvement in your life? And Eric says, yes. And what do you expect? And Eric says, I was going to go to college. And he was asked, how significant of a notion was this? And Eric says, it was the most important thing in my life. It was everything in life. It was all I thought about. He was asked, why was it all you thought about? And Eric says, why was it all I thought about? Because it would end the sex. And that's all I thought about. And he was asked, how did you feel that at 18 about the fact that your father was having sex with you? And he said, I hated it. I hated it. I hated it. So, um... Lyle then got on the stand and he revealed that he was forced to sleep in bed with his mom and um, he was asked, you continued to sleep in her bed around the time you were 11 and 12 12 years old and Lyle said yes sometimes and he was asked if he had to touch his mom and he said yes and he would ask where would he touch his mom and he said everywhere. So not only was this happening with Lyle, it was happening in some degree with Kitty as well. That's gross. Yep. So the thing about the accusations with Kitty is it was very hard for... Um, it was it was easy for the defense to justify the killing. Not that killing is ever really justified, but it's easy for the defense to be like, okay, well, Hosey did all of this shit, and that's why he was killed. Now we have to figure out why. Why was Kitty killed? So the allegations against Kitty were not nearly as bad, I guess, in context as they were to Jose's, but there were some that came out like them having to touch Kitty. Um, The prosecution, however, believed that saying that Kitty was complicit in everything or that she may have been an abuser was just kind of thrown in just so that the defense had a reason to justify her death. Um, the prosecution didn't buy it one bit. So for the closing arguments on the prosecution side, the term, quote, abuse excuse uh, 
was very prevalent. Um, it was used in the media, and they held strongly that the abuse occurred that occurred was fabricated. The prosecution believed that. Um, they believe that the murders were done purely out of greed, premeditated, and they think that that was proven by the spending, the purchasing of the guns about a week before the shooting, Eric's screenplay, all of that being written out of the will, all premeditated. Um, the defense said that there were a lot of things that led up to it, um, but at the end of the day, they say that this was done out of fear for their lives after years of abuse at the hands of their parents. Leslie Abramson um, literally took thumbtacks as she was talking about what the boys went through, and she stuck these tacks into crime scene photos of Jose as she talked about how Jose would literally stick tacks into the boys' thighs and butt as he would rape them or shove objects into them. So showing, you know, this is what the boys would had done to them. Now I'm going to stick thumbtacks into Jose. Mm -hmm. Um so there were reports that Lyle and Eric also read a book in prison called When a Child Kills, Abuse Children Who Kill Their Parents. The author of that book actually was a consultant on the initial trial. That book provides defense strategies for these types of cases, and the stories told by the boys on trial were apparently very similar to ones in the book. Also, many people believe that the brothers ultimately failed um, at proving their defense because they did not tell Dr. Ozeal about the childhood trauma that they had been going through the entire time that they had been seeing him, which um, if they would have told Ozeal about all of the abuse, they would have had backup for their claims. And I call bullshit. One, why would you tell Ozeal when, like, they're smart boys? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, Ozeal's paying their, pay like, Ozeal's definitely paying their dad off. Um, and I would be scared to tell a therapist if Jose was my dad. Yeah. I'd be very scared. For sure. And that book, I don't know. I just, I don't think that holds a lot of merit. I mean, if they, if, if they told the therapist something and then obviously he reported back to Jose and they got in trouble for that. Like, just mm -hmm. anything anything before that, then they would know that their sessions were not, you know, confidential. And they would be very exactly. selective about what they did tell the therapist. So that's also another reason why maybe they didn't say that. Yeah. Um, so with a jury deliberation, since this was a jury trial, even one person could hang the juries. Um, they were equal men to women. They sat through six months of trial. Their options were first-degree murder, second-degree murder, voluntary manslaughter, and involuntary manslaughter. On January 14, 1994, a mistrial was declared for Eric after 19 days of deliberation. Um, they were initially not given the option of not guilty due to the presentation of evidence. Um, but after the initial deliberation, the jury was sent back now with the option of not guilty. They were still deadlocked um, on January 29th. A mistrial was declared for Lyle after 25 days of deliberation. And the jury let the judge know three times that they couldn't reach a, ver a verdict. 
So the DA at the end of the day was really looking for the death penalty for the boys after the first degree murder conviction. So he wanted first degree murder and then he wanted death penalty, especially since they um, had a loss with the OJ trial. They didn't get the county didn't get the win. Mm-hmm. That they They're just out that. for blood. <laughs> yep, pretty much. Yeah. So um, the defense attorneys for the boys were willing to plead for a lesser charge uh, where first-degree murder was not on the table. The district attorney rejected the plea plea bargain. A second trial began in 95. A lot of the same of what happened in the first trial was happening in the second trial. There was a heavier focus on Eric with this one and his experiences. There was a new jury. This time it was only one jury. And with the first trial, a lot of the jurors have come out, specifically the female ones, and said that a lot of the women chose the lesser charge um, rather than the men. The men predominantly chose first-degree murder. The women believed that the boys were victims and that they didn't deserve life in prison. But the men were like, you know what? They did it. That's the evidence. I don't really care that they were molested and I don't believe it. They deserve first-degree murder and life, if not the death penalty. Yeah. And which I think that speaks a lot about the the empathy difference between men and women back then. It might be a little different now. Yeah. Um, one of the female jurors said in an interview, quote, these two terrorist parents built two bombs that blew up and killed them. Yep. Which sums it up. Spot on. <laughs> yep. So um, with the second trial, the only options that the jury were given was first degree murder or not guilty. Because of this, their jury selected first-degree murder guilty in the first degree. Each one of them got two life sentences without the possibility of parole, and they have since exhausted all of their appeals. Um, Eric and Lyle were then split up. They wound up at separate prisons, unable to talk to each other on the phone. They could only write letters, and I thought this was kind of clever. They would actually play chess and send each other one move at a time via mail which you got life in prison how is you gonna pass the time <laughs> right you know what i mean yeah so in february 2018 they both got they were both now in san diego's um rj donovan correctional facility eric was already there so lyle was transferring um in april 4th of 2018 they were finally now in the same housing facility instead of just in the same prison and they are now able to see each other um on when they're like out on the grounds so today eric is now 50 lyle is 53 um throughout their time in jail eric has gotten married to a woman named tammy ruth suckerman um now tammy menendez they got married on june 12 1999 in a waiting room at Folsom state prison they are still married to this day um, Lyle had a friendship with a woman named Anna Erickson throughout the trial. He ended up marrying her in 1996. The marriage lasted five years, and they divorced because uh, she found out he was writing to other women in prison. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Once a ladies' man, always a ladies' man. Wow. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and then in 2003, Lyle married again to a woman named Rebecca Sneed. Hmm. So with Lyle, uh, family and friends monitor a Facebook page on his behalf. The purpose of it is raising awareness about child sexual abuse. He doesn't have internet access, but loved ones do post on the account on his behalf. Um, The account also shares news stories 
um, that people find relevant to the Menendez case, interviews about their cases, and posts about the effects of sexual abuse. Um, so he's like, he's definitely trying to use this as an opportunity to do some good, which I think is a positive thing. Yeah. Lyle is a groundskeeper. As far as last I knew, Lyle was a groundskeeper and Eric was a janitor in prison. Um, and they pretty much keep out of trouble. Uh, Eric is fairly silent. Silent. Lyle is um, more into doing interviews and stuff. He recently actually did a phone interview. Um, and Lyle is very integral in helping fellow prisoners adjust and cope with prison life. Uh, Lyle did say that he thinks that his childhood prepared him for the chaos of prison life. And I think that says a lot about his childhood. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, kind of like my closing thoughts on this, I find it very interesting that through everything I read and the prosec- prosecutor, Pam, um, was interviewed recently, she kept on bringing up how she cannot believe that they did this to their mother and it's like she sees how they could do this to their father. It's, it's like she almost doesn't fault them for murdering their father because she sees exactly why they did it. Because she admits that everything that she heard, he was an awful person. Mm-hmm. But she doesn't understand why they did it to their mother. And um, Kitty Menendez's role in this is very gray. But I'm like, you knew about the excuse. You were complicit. Like, you knew what was happening. Yeah. And she, she was being abused by Jose as well. Mm-hmm. It's just a very, it's, Kitty's whole participation in this is very gray. Um, one of the juror, or one of the friends of Jose and Lyle say that they believe that if they didn't kill Kitty and they only killed Jose, they may have gotten away with it because Lyle would have stuck up for her boys. Or sorry, Kitty would have stuck up for her boys. Would she? I don't know. I think the that's what they were afraid of, and I think it. that's why they killed her, is because she would have been they a witness. And they weren't yeah, sure. I think so, too. And with how, like, she was abusive to them, too, and she let the abuse happen, they probably weren't sure if the, if she was going to cover for them. Yeah, they didn't have trust in, in right. Kitty, which I think is, com- like, obviously, yeah. Um, and finally, my good friend, Terry Moran, said... That if the Menendez brother, if the Menendez brothers were the Menendez sisters, they would be free today. I wholeheartedly believe that. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. I have no doubt that that would be the case today. For sure. Yeah. Huh. So uh, that's that's the remix of the Menendez brothers for you. Nice. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I just, it's hard for me because. Killing is never justified unless it's self-defense. And does self... It's like the show Snapped. Does self-defense need to be something... Like if someone were to walk in here with a gun, I would have... And try and kill me, I would have every right to act in self-defense. However, like prolonged self-defense. It's like their own self-preservation of just trying to keep their head above water and eventually they had enough or they feared for their life enough where they just snapped. That's not really descent, defending yourself, but it is a form of self-preservation. Yeah. yeah. You know? And where does that line get drawn? Yeah, that's true. 
Yeah, because it's not, I don't know, it's a different form of self-defense because you're still defending yourself. It's just the abuse isn't an immediate danger. It's a prolonged built-up danger. Yeah, right. You know? I don't know. It's hard. It's hard, man. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. So, you guys, um, thank you for sticking around for Menendez (laughs) 2.0. And, uh... (laughs) <laughs> if there are any because this is another heavy hitter we did Eileen and now we got Menendez if there are any other big cases that you want us to do let us know we do have another really big heavy hitter coming up for our one year anniversary this fall which um, not to spoil alert spoiler alert but not really spoiler but we got a really exciting one coming up as well but if there's any big ones you want us to do feel free to email us contact, contact at perfect stranglers and drop us a line <laughs> drop us a line drop us a line and uh we will catch you on the flip side and the flip side being next yeah that about does it for us and we will catch you next week stranglers bye stranglers bye